Welcome to the LA Public Health Podcast. I'm Steve Baldwin. 2022 is here. Happy New Year, by the way. And it's hard to believe that it was just over a month ago, around the first week of December 2021, that the first case of the Omicron variant of COVID-19 was reported in Los Angeles County. And since then, our county has been experiencing an unprecedented surge in the number of new cases of COVID-19. And so today we have a very special guest to help us understand the cycle of variants, surges, and how vaccinations can help keep us safe. Dr. Muntu Davis is the medical director with the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health. Dr. Davis, thank you so much for taking time for what I'm sure is a very busy schedule these days to talk a little bit with me today. Oh, thank you for having me. Dr. Davis, it's great to have you back on the program. I think you were with us about a year ago when we launched this podcast. So I really appreciate you uh, coming back on with us for round two. Yeah, thanks. So we're still at it. We're still battling COVID-19. The news that we're hearing so much about these days is variants. I keep hearing about variants. So I'm hoping you can help us clarify and define what a variant is for our podcast audience. Um, Dr. Davis, what is a variant? The way to sort of think about it is when you start off with something, it's one of a kind. And then as that something replicates, there may be some changes in it. And so those changes or those mutations in what was the original SARS-CoV virus that causes COVID-19 has some mutations in its uh, genetic makeup and the proteins are a little bit different on the, the virus itself. And so those are really what variants are. They're just mutations inside of the original virus uh, that make this one or these different. And so they're variants of the original. We've heard a lot about Delta, the Delta variant. We've heard about Omicron in the news. Are there other variants? How many variants are there that we know of in the United States? It's interesting. When you uh, just look at Delta alone, I believe there are about 30 different variants of that particular virus. You know, when we, we talk about each of the different classes, so there was, you know, Alpha, there was Beta, there was Delta, you know, there's been Omega, Mu, there's, there's a number of different lineages that we talk about. But in particular, there are a couple that are variants of concern. And the two variants of concern uh, that people have really been focused on around the world um, have lately been the Omicron variant, which is the newest one that has been spreading very rapidly, as well as the Delta variant, which was the one that was most predominant a few weeks ago or, you know, before November, before the end of November, when uh, the Omicron variant showed up in South Africa. Just to get into the science a little bit more, what are the differences between the different variants? What makes one variant different from another? It's usually in terms of the formation of either the spike protein, which is a key indicator that's on the outside of the virus, and that allows the virus to attach easily or maybe harder to attach inside of the cells inside of your respiratory tract. So inside of your throat, your lungs, those changes make them different. And so each one, depending on the variation, you can sort of think about this like Darwinism, you know, where you have certain species that will survive and certain ones that won't. Um, and so these are the same thing with the variants. So they may have some differences in terms of their proteins on the outside that make them either replicate faster inside of the body, meaning they reproduce quicker. And for example, um, the Omicron variant is showing to 
replicate or reproduce and have a large number of virus inside of the upper airway, which means that you're going to cough out more when you do cough, different from Delta, which replicated more inside of the lungs. Uh, and so those, those differences change how the virus acts inside of the body. So it can replicate faster, it can attach better, and it could be more easily transmitted uh, with those characteristics or cause more severe disease, depending on how fast it replicates. Hmm. So are some of the symptoms with the different variants of the virus different from one variant to the next? You said that some of the variants attach in the throat, some are in the lungs. Are the symptoms, the sort of outward symptoms different as well? Uh, they can be slightly, but in general, they're about the same. And so I want to clarify, um, when I say that one replicates more inside the upper airway, one replicates more inside of the lungs, they replicate in both places. It just happens to be that one attaches better in the upper airway and one attaches better in the lungs. Let me also clarify that when we're talking about variants, we're looking at, you know, what happens with the transmissibility. Is it more or less, more easily transmitted or less? Does it cause a worse severity of disease? And is it being picked up by the lab tests that we have? And can it be treated by the vaccines or at least uh, prevented by the vaccines that we currently have or the treatments that are currently available? And so a variant can be different on all three of those, again, impact on diagnostics, vaccines and treatment, or impact on transmissibility or impact on severity. And so those are the three characteristics we look at when we're talking about different variants. But in general, what we have seen is the symptoms are generally the same. There's one thing that seems to be noted with the Omicron variant, whereas the prior viruses uh, or variants of the virus that causes COVID-19 cause loss of taste and smell, it appears that Omicron is doing less of that. But otherwise, you still get a fever, you could still have cough, you still get fatigue, you still get all of those other symptoms. But that, at least at the moment, is the only real difference that uh, seems to be seen with this particular variant, Omicron versus Delta or the prior variants that were in circulation. Okay. So who is most at risk for contracting COVID-19 through one of these new variants? It's always going to be folks who are unvaccinated and who have not had a prior infection. Um, so they're pretty vulnerable to attack. They have no memory of having an infection. But we're also seeing that even for those who may have been infected previously with like a Delta variant or something before, that they are actually still at higher risk of reinfection with the Omicron variant. When they looked at a comparison between Omicron and Delta, if you were previously infected with Delta, 5.4 times more likely to get infected with Omicron. For those who are vaccinated, especially those who are vaccinated and boosted, they have a much lower risk of being infected or having severe illness if infected by Omicron or Delta or any other virus out there causing COVID. That's great news. So, so the vaccines are protective. Will the vaccines need to be updated as we continue to see more variants? You know, it's a good question. So there are a couple ways to think about improving vaccine effectiveness if it looks like it's not uh, working as well. We know that over time for almost all vaccines, your immunity or your protection from the vaccine decreases. It's either one, you get a booster dose, much like a tetanus shot, or you get a new formulation of the vaccine, like a flu shot each year. And so at the moment, it looks as if 
booster doses are sufficient to boost our immunity uh, in terms of being protected against this current Omicron variant, as well as the other, other variants of the virus that were circulating before. But there could be in the future uh, a variant that escapes the protection from the vaccines and boosters don't help, and then you would need a new formulation of the vaccine. Can you talk a little bit, uh, again, about the science, just a little bit, about updating a vaccine? How exactly does that work? How do scientists figure out how to update a vaccine? Well, it's, it's the same way they do to, to create it. Um, this is, happens across the world. Everybody shares you know, the mapping of the viruses or the variants that are circulating, and then they try to identify the proteins to isolate that will give protection, of course, without causing disease, because the proteins by themselves don't cause disease and which one of those will be the most protective uh, once provided to a person. And so those go through clinical trials in order to see whether or not it's effective or not. And so a new vaccine will go through the same trials as the first vaccine. They'll have to do some initial studies, make sure it's safe. They'll have to do some more studies to make sure it's effective and make sure the dose is right in terms of it. And if there's spacing and there's more than one dose, then they'll do that as well. And so we'll go through all of the same steps uh, that the previous first vaccine went through. Got it. Okay, so the vaccines we have now are protective, uh, but we are seeing somewhat of a surge. We're seeing more cases. So is Omicron more contagious than the previous variants? Omicron is more easily spread than the previous variants. Delta was more easily spread than Alpha or the UK variant and Omicron is more easily spread than Delta. Um, and you can sort of see that looking at how fast the rise in cases we've seen both here in the U.S., before that in South Africa, and before that in the United Kingdom, as well as what's happening in Europe right now. The rise has been much quicker uh, in terms of new infections than any other variant that we've seen so far. And what about the severity of the disease with Omicron? It seems on the surface like it's less severe, but might that not matter if more people are getting COVID-19 because it's just more transmissible? Well, yeah. I mean, the, the more people you have infected, the more likely you're going to see people with severe disease just because of the sheer magnitude of the numbers that you're seeing. You know, some say, at least at the moment, that Omicron appears to cause less severe disease but much of the early studies have really been in people who had you know, been vaccinated, which is protective in and of itself from severe disease. We're still waiting to see how this is playing out for those who are unvaccinated. But some of the complication with it that we've recently heard is it's hard to tell whether or not it's causing less severe disease because people were previously infected and have a little bit of protection from that or if it's really the vaccine, or if it's just not causing as severe disease. So we're still trying to learn and be sure about what we're learning, you know, as we look at what's happening with this disease. But in either case, we, we pay attention to hospitalizations as a factor of, of how severe disease is, but we won't always know if everybody in the hospital has Omicron. Delta is still circulating. You know, it really is uh, something that we're, we're estimating based on what we're seeing. Which reminds me to ask you, is there a way to tell whether you have Delta or Omicron if you take like one of those home tests or you get tested at like Walgreens or CVS? Will they tell you what you have? No, those those yeah. tests uh, that are done are really just to detect the fact that the virus is present. 
there has to be some special what's called whole genome sequencing of that specimen in order to identify actually which type of uh, variant that you're actually infected with. But in general, treatment is the same for the most part. There have been some new studies, at least in terms of the new therapeutics, that say for Omicron, some of them don't work. So in those instances, if you're hospitalized, then they're going to want to figure out what you have in order to figure out how best to treat you. But in general, for mild disease, it doesn't matter what you have. It's symptomatic treatment. Gotcha. All right. Last question on Omicron, I think. I can't guarantee it, but I think this is the last one I have. How prevalent is it in L.A. County? Do we have a sense for the scope and scale of Omicron in in L.A. County? We do do, we have some whole genome sequencing that comes from our lab or public health lab, um, as well as from many other external labs. Some of them sequence all of their positive samples, uh, but we do get reports uh, for our cases here in L.A. County based on that, that sequencing Unfortunately, I don't have an update, and I, and I don't want to tell you what it was last week because it's been changing so rapidly, uh, but we, will, we do have an update on a weekly basis. But what I can tell you in general, as mirrors the state in terms of cases, the proportion of, of Omicron cases have been going up, and they have been identified in almost every jurisdiction inside of California and definitely across all of the states. You can look at some of the CDC maps to see that say in the upper northeast, uh, it may be about you know 70% of the cases, and in California, it may be just under 60% of the cases. But in either case, it, it's spreading, and it's spreading across the U.S. And I just want to remind our listeners that you can go to our website. That's publichealth.lacounty.gov. Click on COVID resources, and you can find a ton of COVID information there online that's published and kept up to date every day. I want to clarify something related to, you know, sort of knowing what you have in terms of the variants. A lot of the newer treatments actually are for mild to moderate disease, meaning people are in the hospital, but they are at risk for severe outcomes if the disease gets worse. In those instances, for those treatments, providers are going to want to figure out and they'll have to send off to a lab to get sequencing. uh, Because as I said, some of the treatments work for Omicron and some of them have shown that they don't work as well. Omicron. So it's important, but it's important for the provider to know based on what they're going to treat you with, you know, in terms of your infection and your risk. And the providers can request the gene sequencing to be done for their clients, their patients? Yeah, it goes goes to labs that do that sequencing and most providers have some setup, you know, to do that. Uh, Like I said, some labs, you know, do it automatically on all of their positive tests. So, you know, it can be found out that way. Uh, But not every lab does that, but there are labs that do do it. And most providers know where to send their labs in order to get sequencing done. Okay. Do we have resources for providers on our webpage that providers can access and go to if they have questions or concerns about that? Yeah, we we have information um, on our page. Our lab director communicates with all of the labs. We do, uh, as a public health lab, do do sequencing for those who providers who don't have or haven't set up, you know, that relationship if they need to. You know, so far, I think we've been able to accommodate that those requests. But in general, we provide guidance and help providers in terms of sending their samples for sequencing. And the state also does sequencing as well. So some of them also send it to the state to do that sequencing. 
Okay. And we can put a link to our webpage in the show notes of this page. So if you scroll in your podcast player to the show notes section, you'll be able to find a hot link for the, our COVID webpage for the public health department here in Los Angeles County. Okay, let's go ahead and shift to have a couple of questions about surges. I've noticed really since the pandemic began, the overall pattern of the pandemic has been, you know, a series of waves, sort of surges in cases, followed by declines. My question is really simple, sort of how does this happen? How do we have these surges and then declines? And what causes a spike? in coronavirus cases? And how can we sort of stay in the decline mode? Um, how do we stay down there? So what causes the surge? Well, the basics of transmission of, of this virus and most respiratory viruses like influenza is contact with somebody who's infected. And usually it's close contact, again, more than 15 minutes on average. Uh, but repeated exposures that total up to 15 minutes that's unprotected can also lead to infections. So what we've seen in terms of our patterns have really been around the times when we know that we have lots of social events. So we know when we get into wintertime, right after Thanksgiving, right after Christmas, right after New Year's, we've seen surges. We also know that once we hit summer, people are off, they're on vacation, they're traveling, they're, they're getting together with family and friends. We've seen surges there as well. So that's been a lot of what we've seen uh, really around those times where we as humans start to interact more and get together and, and gather um, are the times that we start to see surges. What depends on whether or not that happens is what people do when they're together. So if people aren't wearing masks and they're indoors and they're indoor for a long time, there's not good ventilation, there's not a lot of fresh air coming in and out of, of the location and somebody happens to be infected, um, then it's high likelihood that it's going to transmit to those who are there. But also, you know, as we talk about this, everybody has to understand that you don't have to have symptoms in order to transmit the disease. Earlier on, we discovered that uh, where we initially thought that having symptoms is the only time that you transmit, we later discovered that up to two days before you have symptoms, you can transmit, and that actually some people are infected and don't have symptoms at all and they can transmit as well. So it's, again, sort of not knowing whether or not somebody's infected and then having these close contact and social gatherings, um, you know, are the risks that we see uh, in terms of these surges. Is that one of the reasons that we continually recommended mask wearing? Because whether or not you have symptoms, if you're wearing a mask, wouldn't that offer some level of protection? Yeah, it's one of the basic measures that we use and it's used, initially we thought it was just for source control, meaning, you're the infected person, you put on a mask, it keeps your droplets that might have the virus on it or that does have the virus on it close to you and not spread out into the room. And then we realized that, you know, the masks were also protective. So not only uh, did it prevent or lower the risk of someone who's infected actually spreading their infected droplets, but it also protected the wearer uh, from being exposed to those droplets. You know, when we start to see that transmission goes up to a substantial level or a high level, that's where we reimpose the requirement to wear a mask indoors. Again, regardless of vaccination status, just because there was so much more transmission out there that the risk was just higher. Okay, so this year we're in the middle of another winter surge. Although looking at the numbers year over year, the number of new cases now are quite a bit lower than they were last year. Does that mean that we're better off this year 
than we were last year. Are we doing better in winter of 21-22 than we were in winter of 2021? Yeah, I would say that we are. And, and if you go back to that time, that's when we were just getting vaccines in place. They were initially only available to our highest risk population, our seniors and our healthcare workers to begin with. And so there were lots of people who weren't able to you know, get protected by being vaccinated. But we've gone through a full year, the vaccines being available. They're widely available for everyone five years and older. We have a significant portion of our population that is protected you know, from you know, serious illness and have a lower risk of, of infection because they are vaccinated. Now, the other thing that comes into play though with a surge is when you have a new variant. <laughs> You know, again, uh, and this one, uh, the Omicron variant showed that um, being fully vaccinated, you know, it didn't have the same level of protection against infection um, as it did against Delta. And so we start to see surges based on changes in the virus, uh, again, that evades the protection or transmits more easily. Um, So that's the other thing that came into play. But I think in general, um, if you look at our curves, we are much better off than we were last year uh, at this time, I think our surge started a little bit later and at a lower level uh, than we did the year before. And again, I believe that's all due to how many people we have vaccinated so far. So you mentioned being fully vaccinated. How important is it that fully vaccinated folks also get a booster, particularly given that the COVID vaccines are a little bit less effective against Omicron? Yeah, it's it's, uh, super important. You know, one, we know and the CDC has shown that even if you're fully vaccinated, meaning you've gotten your two doses of Pfizer or Moderna or your one dose of Johnson & Johnson over a certain period of time, the protection from infection related to those vaccines starts to decrease. We've also seen that with this Omicron variant, being fully vaccinated and boosted restores much of that protection against the Omicron variant, more so than just being fully vaccinated. So I've got a few friends that received the J&J vaccine, and I'm curious as to why they are no longer being preferred for boosters. And should those who are who received the J&J vaccine seek out a booster from one of the, either Pfizer or Moderna? What's the story there? Yeah, so the CDC, you know, did an update, you know, the advisory committee on immunization practices really looked at the benefits of each of the three vaccines, as well as the risk associated with each of them. And what they saw was two things. So one, for Johnson & Johnson, you need to get a booster two months after your first dose, whereas for Pfizer and Moderna, uh, the two-dose COVID vaccines, it was six months after getting your your second dose. So that's one thing. So the protection didn't last as long. It waned quicker. And then um, there were some risk of, you know, some clotting that is still a rare risk, but it was more so than any anywhere else that they had seen. So they looked at the benefits and the risk and said, you know what, the mRNA, Pfizer, Moderna, vaccines have better benefits and less risk. So we're going to recommend moving to these vaccines instead, based on the benefits to to risk ratios. At this point, those are the preferred vaccines, mRNA vaccines. 
However, if someone really says, no, I really want the Johnson and Johnson and they've been given the advice or the education on the potential risk and the benefits and they still want it, they can still get it. Um, so it's not not okay. available, but just based on the science, um, it appears that the Pfizer and Moderna mRNA COVID vaccines have better benefits and less risk. And what about natural immunity? For example, if someone has been infected with COVID-19 already, are those antibodies that are present as a result of that infection enough to protect them from a second infection or like an infection with Omicron? Yeah, no. So for some studies have shown that, you know, even with prior infection, five and almost five and a half times more likely to get reinfected with Omicron than get, getting reinfected with Delta. And we had some early studies published by the CDC uh, that actually compared those who were previously infected, this is during the time of Delta, who those who were previously infected didn't get vaccinated to those who were previously infected and did get vaccinated. And there was almost a two and a half times risk uh, higher for those who were not vaccinated but previously infected of getting reinfected. So those who were previously infected and vaccinated had a lower risk of getting reinfected. There are some benefits to natural immunity. It appears that uh, being vaccinated actually is more protective, even if you've been previously infected. Got it. Okay, just a couple of more questions. And thank you for spending so much time with us today. I really appreciate you sharing all of this great information with our listeners. So uh, data is showing that testing can also help stop chains of transmission before they even start. And can you explain how testing stops transmission? Well, the, the simple thing to stop transmission, you have to identify a person who's infected. And so by getting tested and knowing that you are infected, it should change your behavior and, and what you do. And you should be at home and basically away from others so that you don't expose them or transmit the infection to them. So that's really the core of any infectious disease control, any outbreak management. You have to identify the cases in order to stop them from unknowingly um, or unintentionally you know, spreading it to another person. And in terms of testing, you know, we've recommended that people, especially now, test before gathering with other people to make sure they're not infected and potentially expose others. And if you're going to travel, test before and after you travel uh, just to make sure you didn't unknowingly get infected, you know, throughout your travels. And so at this point, it's not as if we're saying test yourself every day. But when you've done some things that are risky or you're potentially going to get together with a number of other people to test yourself to make sure you know your status. And then after anything risky, you know, test yourself again three to five days afterwards to see if you've been infected or not. OK, so I go to a party with some friends. I'm out on a Saturday night. A week later, I'm not feeling so good. And I give myself a COVID test and it turns out I'm positive for COVID. What do I do? How long do I have to isolate? And when do I test again? So if you're positive, you know, let's say you did a home test, you know, some people will go to the lab and, you know, go to a doctor and, and ask for a confirmatory test. Most of the home tests are antigen tests. And our recommendations uh, at the moment have been to confirm with a PCR test, which is a different type of COVID diagnostic test. But in either case, if you're positive, you should stay home, stay away from others. If you live with other folks, 
try to be in one room in terms of you sleeping, no one else in that room. Keep the door closed. If someone's going to come into that room, wear your mask, they should be wearing their mask as well. But you're essentially trying to avoid contact and sharing space with other people who you could potentially infect. At the moment, the, the recommendations have been to isolate for 10 days in order to go through that period of time. And hopefully you don't have a fever by the end of those 10 days and your symptoms are better in order to be at a period where you're less likely to infect others. And so you're just resolving your symptoms, but you're not transmitting to others. Now, the CDC recently you know, made some updated recommendations for how long people need to isolate. And we're waiting for the state to confirm that that's what they want the state to do. And that changed a recommendation to change isolation to just five days away from others. But for a full 10 days, for an additional five days, you still need to wear a mask when you're around others. Um, But for right now, 10 days is probably best. You know, wearing a mask if you are around others, even for a full 14 days, has been the, the standing recommendation and guidelines for those who are infected. Well, Dr. Davis, this has been a real pleasure to talk with you again. You just have a wealth of information. I'm so grateful that we're on the same team here at the Department of Public Health. And uh, thank you so much for joining the show today. I really appreciate you. Thank you. Appreciate it. This episode of LA Public Health was produced by the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health. Our department is nationally accredited by the Public Health Accreditation Board and is committed to protecting and improving the health of over 10 million residents in Los Angeles County. For more information about DPH programs and services, visit publichealth.lacounty.gov and follow us on social media at LA Public Health. My name is Steve Baldwin, and you've been listening to the LA Public Health Podcast.